Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Steph from Heinemann, and this week on the Heinemann Podcast, we're excited to introduce the first of three special minisodes and invite you all into the conversations of the Heinemann Summer Book Study, hosted in the Heinemann PD Teaching and Learning Facebook group. In this year's book study, we're hosting a conversation on two books with intersecting themes, Kids First from Day One by Christine Hertz and Christine Mraz, and Being the Change by Sara Ahmed. Our book study facilitator, Jacqueline Karabinas, sat down with Ariel Johnson, a Heinemann Fellow from Cohort 2, to talk about this week's theme, Building and Practicing the Real Skills of a Strong Community. So Ariel, I definitely wanted to start and ask you today about the physical and emotional environment. We've been reading Kids First from Day One and Being the Change in the Heinemann PD Teaching and Learning Facebook group. And when I review the pieces about physical and emotional environment, they I, I see how much they tie together. And I noted a quote that the environment is the third teacher. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about how the environment is an, another teacher in your classroom. Yes. Um I absolutely do view the classroom as the third teacher. I think it's capable of offering provocations, providing support for social and emotional growth and intellectual growth, obviously. And I think that it helps us to help children make their thinking visible within our classrooms. I think that our classrooms need to tell our children, I have power here, I belong here. I can choose the materials and tools that I need in order to be successful here. And when I speak in this place, then people are listening. So I've had the great privilege of going to both Reggio Amelia and Opal School um, in Portland, Oregon. And where I think I always viewed the environment as a teacher, but that's when I came to the full realization of the power that the physical environment of the classroom can have, both social emotionally and academically. I think we focus so much on charts and tools and all of those things hanging on the wall, and those things are absolutely important. But where I teach, the demographic that I teach, I have a lot of students who are experiencing a lot of trauma and um, have a lot of things going on in their lives that other children might not have going on in their lives. And I have found that creating an aesthetically pleasing environment that invites them in and shows them how beautiful and wonderful they are has so much power. For example, when you walk into my classroom, there is an entryway before you walk into the actual classroom and our entryway is covered with photographs that we accumulate, you know, throughout the school year. I I watch kids stand in the entryway and look at pictures and say, remember that? Or, man, I remember when I couldn't do that. Or, I've grown. I think that, you know, creating an environment that is healthy and showing children how to exist in that space is incredibly important. And I think the environment teaches them how to exist in it because they do want to sustain beauty once they've been exposed to it. And you have taught them, you know, how to exist in that space. Those are just some of the, the thoughts I have about the environment. Another thing that I think is critically important is that children's voice or voices are 
all about the room. That's hanging up their quotes, uh, hanging up full conversations, making sure that there's documentation throughout your classroom that is not reflective of the teacher voice and what I have to say about something, but it's reflective of the children's voices and the things that they have to say about certain things. And so one thing that I found in doing this hanging up documentation and making sure that their voices are present on the wall is that they refer back to those things and they also use them as mentors and they take pride in being represented throughout the classroom. So once we learn how to talk about things, there's this belief when you are teaching English language learners, oh, let's let's have students frames for every single lesson and those sorts of things. And I found that once you provide that scaffold initially and then you hang those things up about the room, children just speak like that in a very academic way as appropriate in a classroom because you've set up that expectation and you have kind of venerated it. This is what we do here. This is how we communicate with each other. This is how we think deeply in this space. So I think it's it's so powerful just to take a documentation and represent all of their voices and all of the thoughts. And, you know, another thing about the environment that I have conversations with a lot with my colleagues about is how we set up our environment being a way to empower our children to make choices, thus being a form of justice, ultimately. So if you have children who have difficulty making choices and you set up your environment such that they have to make choices in order to exist in that space and you've completely empowered them and you've shown them that they have the capacity to make choices, they will be expected to make choices and they can make really, really great ones. That's a form of justice. And I have conversations with my kids all the time, kind of in jest about, you know, me not wanting them to grow up to be that Black Friday shopper who knocks somebody down in line. Like, I don't want to see you on television one day because you have learned in this space that we have to be aware of our bodies. We have to be respectful of other people's bodies and we have to make the choices that are going to keep us safe and other people safe and those sorts of things. And I think a lot of times we teach a lot of kids who don't have a lot of opportunity to make choices the teachers respond to that by just making all the choices for children, which inhibits them completely. You know, some teachers respond by giving them choices, and sometimes you have to integrate that slowly, but it's completely necessary to teach children how to make choices because children who don't know how to make choices become adults who don't know how to make choices, and we all know what that leads to. It's the huge part of stopping the, the preschool to prison pipeline. I believe that very strongly, that the social, emotional, and physical environment that we set up has the power to keep our children from having lives that are less than what they are capable of. Well, I think when you feel as though you were silenced at a young enough age, you've learned that that is what's expected of you in the community. And I wonder if you've seen that, if you've seen children come to you almost expecting to be told what to do and expecting to be directed in every way. Uh, You've referred a lot to a lot of the things you just said about explicitly teaching the skills of community, uh, whether it's caring for materials or, you know, how you speak up for each other or how you speak to each other. You know, when you talk about the Black Friday example, you know, you're teaching children how to communicate with each other in a space now so that they don't act like that later. So You know, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of the time it takes to slow down and and teach those skills of community. You know, I call it going slow to go fast. Some years are slower than others. 
but I, you know, we have to be responsive to the actual children who are in our presence. And so there have been years where it's taken me two weeks to build community and then we can move on to teaching in small groups and be being able to confer more with children and those sorts of things. Um, and then there have been years when it's taken me six weeks to get to a guided reading group. But I think ultimately what you're doing is by taking that time and slowing down is you're buying yourself a lot of time later. I, you know, like I said, I gauge it every year based on the students that I'm teaching and what they are able to do. I, I don't go into a school year. Like I've worked at schools where they said, oh, you must be teaching small groups within two weeks or you're not doing it right. Um, I, I just don't believe that that is true. I think you have to look at the children that you have and what capacity they have to self-manage and do the things that, you know, that they need to do in order to be successful. Because it doesn't do the children that you're teaching in a small group or the other children or the work that you're trying to do. It's not of service to anyone if you have to hop up from the, from the floor or the table or wherever you're teaching every few minutes to, I don't want to say manage behavior, but, um, teach into it and teach replacement behaviors and show children, you know, what they need to do instead. So you're not really teaching the reading group or doing the teaching of social skills justice uh, when you have to do that. So I think it's really important to slow down and make sure that everybody has what they need. And sometimes this school year I have found we're rolling along just beautifully and then all of a sudden chaos, you know, all over everything classrooms like families, like marriages, or other romantic relationships or friendships, they all go through cycles, right? And I think a classroom does that as well, and that you have to expect that you are going to have to, at times, even if you've already taught skills, even if it seems as though children have mastered those skills, there are times when you have to stop all over again and reteach Think through things together as a community so that you can push forward and be successful. Some of those times are predictable, like immediately after winter break, which is two or three weeks long, where they haven't been in the routine of things. You know, those long breaks are kind of predictable times, obviously, right at the beginning of the school year. And then the end of the school year also seems like you can predict that you're going to have to stop and regroup and reteach and rethink with children about how our community is doing, how we can make it better so that we're all doing what we need to do and getting what we need and learning and growing together as human beings. I think that's something that's really important um, for teachers to realize is that children are not becoming human beings. They are. They are fully realized human beings and they have experiences, they have language, they have culture that is specific to their families and their communities, and they are coming to school with all of those things. And so um, it's important for us to not look at them as something that we're going to impress ourselves, our values, our culture, all of those things. I think that, that that's the root of everything in a classroom, right? You can walk into a classroom and see what a teacher's view of the child is. And that's the most important thing. I think the first question you need to answer is, how do I view children? What do I believe about children and what their needs are and how to 
attend to those needs and how to fully integrate them into the space as valuable, important people who have important things to say and voices. Listening to children is just so critical. It's so important. Sometimes I go in my classroom with one idea about what I'm going to teach and it turns into something completely different. I remember once last year, I was teaching a math lesson and one of my students figured something out on her whiteboard on her own. And it was not at all how I was intending to teach that particular topic. And she showed it to everyone and she said, hey, here, this is what I did. And they were all like, oh, show us that again, you know, do it in front of us so we can see it. And she did it. And she essentially taught the lesson and they got it. And I could have not been in the room. And they still would have learned from one another. So I think it's important that we view children as knowledgeable capable, incredible people who are going to awe us every single day if we allow them to. You know, you mentioned something earlier about really listening to children, and I started thinking about the chapter and being the change about listening with love. And I really think that the more you're modeling to students that you will listen to them with love, that students will also listen to each other with love. I think so often we want children to walk through the door having the skills already to be a part of a community. And we want them to walk through the door already um, knowing right from wrong. And we forget that they're bringing with them their own experiences they're bringing so much with them. And so, you know, I'm wondering if you have any stories you can share from your classroom uh, where you found your students really listening and responding to each other with love. I think that there's listening with love in everyday experiences, and there's also listening with love in the midst of a crisis, kind of like the story that Sarah tells at the beginning of that chapter. Um, I have both sorts of examples for my classroom, even just last year, we were actually reading the book Love by Matt De La Pena, and we got to the controversial page where it is clear that the father is leaving and the mother is incredibly upset. There's furniture turned over and the boy is hiding underneath the piano with a dog there. And um, we got to that page and I kind of just paused and let them take a look at it. And it was the most rich, incredible conversation we had had to date. And it was that connection, right? They connected to the book because unfortunately that's an experience that they have in their own homes. And then they connected with each other on a very deep level because they realized, oh, my friends have been through this too. They experienced this too. There was a lot of hugging and crying and comforting one another. It was incredibly powerful. I, you know, I left emotionally drained, of course, because it's hard to see five, six-year-old children talk about things that adults are doing in their homes. You know, like my parents fight and my dad drinks too much too, or I hide under things. Also, when that happened, there was another time when a little girl's father had physically abused her mother in the home the night before, and um, there was a domestic abuse call made, and she just had a, you know, a really rough night. And at our morning meeting, she just blurted it out. And instantaneously, I didn't say one word. I was still sitting there processing what she was telling us. And there were 18 other children wrapped around her, hugging her, comforting her, consoling her, telling her that it was not her fault and that it would be okay. And a few kids said, you know, I have this experience as well. So, 
you know, those are those are hard stories and those are things that are that are difficult but and heavy. But also there are the moments where they listen to each other every day in such a way that they celebrate one another and share their lives and things with one another. So one day one of my students walked in and was just like, Miss Jay, Miss Jay, I got so and so favorite thing. I got in the book about his favorite thing. So he pulls a book out of his backpack and it's a book about sharks and sharks are you know, that particular child's favorite thing. And he wasn't there yet. So that little boy, he stood in the entryway to our classroom with the book tucked behind his back for at least five minutes waiting for his friend to arrive. And, you know, as other kids filed into the classroom, they were, you know, they wanted to know what was going on. And so they, it became like a group thing. Everybody was waiting for this child to arrive because they were so excited because they knew how excited he would be because he's both a passionate reader and, you know, completely in love with sharks. So finally, the other child came in and one little girl put her hand over his eyes and walked him toward the other child and she moved her hand and you know there was a big reveal the shark book and he had used his allowance to buy a book for another child in our classroom and you know that child was so thrilled he was so incredibly excited oh, wow, and, he bought it. you know <sighs> yeah he bought it he's like i got this for my friend you know and he's like you like it bro you know? <laughs> You tell these stories and these stories, these aren't extra things. These aren't things that maybe just happen in in one class here and another class there. These are things that happen because you intentionally create a, a community that really mirrors, you know, Christine, Christine talk a lot about creating what the world we want to live in. You know, is your classroom a microcosm you know, of the world? And that isn't the exact quote, right. but it's, it's designing a classroom that is a microcosm of the world. And I think that the more we can internalize that, and, and you've described this, does it matter if kids can go out into the world and they can do math and they can read and write if they can't be citizens? And I think that that is something that we really need to hold close to our hearts because everything you describe, that's the world I want to live in. Yes, absolutely. I want to live in a role where my friends buy me books and my friends comfort me when I when I'm struggling and like my friends relate to me when I feel like I need to connect with someone else. It's absolutely important. And Susan McKay from Open School, every time I hear her speak, she talks about the importance of the heart. And how critical it is that we are creating citizens who can go out into the world and be empathetic. Because if you only have intellect, then you may not make the best choices. And I think that's pretty obvious in the society in which we are living in today. Our world can be a pretty scary and terrible place where children are in cages and where adult human beings are aghast if we are only teaching the mind, if we are only assessing whether or not our children can read, write, do math, all of those things, but we are not creating children who are going to go out and create a world in which everybody can live successfully, happily, and as their authentic selves. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that that is what I'm trying to create in my classroom. Um, it's a microcosm of what the world should be like. And that doesn't mean that everything 
thing is Rosie and all the children or their teacher are happy all of the time, every single moment of the day. You know, I've had some pretty difficult moments this past year. I had a student who, quite frankly, was a racist. Um, she looked me right in the face and said, you don't belong here with us because you're Black. And that was a moment where I had to pause and think to myself, what do I need to do here? How am I going to deal with this child in such a way that she grows as a person through this experience with me? How can I make her hear me? How can I make her be more empathetic? And, you know, one of the important parts of that had nothing to do with me. is actually, you know, other children in the room, one in particular, who I often referred to as my abuela. She just was an old soul. And she looked her right in the face and said, that's not okay. Before I could even say anything, she said, that is not okay. And the child actually said, well, she could be with you because she was a very dark skin or is a very dark skin Mexican girl. She said, cause you know, you're really dark brown like she is. And she said, no, that's not okay. If you start leaving people out based on what they look like or whether or not they speak English or Spanish or Vietnamese or something else, then you're going to have people being left out. And then we won't all be able to be friends. And that's not kind. Is that the way that you want to be treated? And she said, well, no, that's not the way I want to be treated. And that was the beginning of a very long study and a lot of work. And a lot of it was emotionally, you know, training for me. But by the end of the school year, that child, when we were reading a completely different book, at the end of the school year, she, one of the little girls said, um, that the character had a lot of problems and wasn't behaving, you know, very well, and that she related to that character because they didn't. And then that other, the other child, the, the child who was racist, she said, no, no, it doesn't always have to be that way. You can change. You can change. Just because you make bad choices and think things that are not right doesn't mean you always have to be that way. You can change. I changed. Remember how I didn't like dark brown people before? And now I do because I've learned. So that's the kind of work, and that's kindergarten. That's the kind of work that we need to be doing in our classrooms from the day children enter them if we are expecting to build the kind of world that we all can exist in. Were there literacy skills at play there? Absolutely. You know, most of the work that I did with them was to read aloud um, pertaining to that particular topic anyway. The children need to be our curriculum. And you can teach everything that needs to be taught while also teaching children. If I had followed a script, I would have ignored every bit of that particular situation or many others um, that arose in my classroom. But I, I don't follow scripts. I follow children. And I think that's where where the power is. Our thanks to Jacqueline and Ariel for their time today. You can join our summer book study conversations by searching for the Heinemann PD Teaching and Learning Facebook group. We'd love for you to subscribe to the Heinemann podcast on iTunes and Google Play where you can leave a comment or review. We're also now streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere you can get your podcasts. You can also follow Heinemann on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as our various Facebook groups. 
Thanks for listening.